0: the explanation podcast the show where we broke into the map room and painted them all green my name is ian stevens i'm a political scientist and an activist and i run a youtube channel called the lucretia report
1: and i am silvia salazar founder of tono latino i like to talk about politics and i want to tell you about it like we're sitting down for a cup of coffee and i also like to tell you how to get involved
0: so since this is the first episode, I want to give you guys a brief explanation <laughs> explanation of what this show is going to be. We're going to try to go deep into some policy and political issues that we think most media out there just kind of glosses over. Today, we're going to be talking about redlining and housing inequity. And in the first half of each show, either Sylvia or I are going to present to the other one today. I'm going to present to Sylvia in future weeks. She's going to present to me, and we're going to discuss this for the first half. Then we're going to go into an interview where we're going to talk to guests about these. I think it's going to be super interesting. Definitely subscribe if you enjoy what you hear today. And if you want to follow the show on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Explanation underscore pod, on Instagram at The Explanation Pod, and on Facebook at The Explanation Podcast. And you can follow me at IanCST on Twitter. And Sylvia?
1: Con tono latino on Twitter or tono.latino on Instagram.
0: So Sylvia, today we're going to be talking about redlining and housing inequity. Are you ready? I'm ready. I sent you some maps. I want you to take a look at the first three, the ones that are mostly red and blue, and these are of three U.S. cities, and these are drawn from census data. Each dot in this map represents 25 people. The blue dots represent black people. The red dots represent white people. Uh, green is Asian people. Orange is Hispanic people. And I want you to try to describe for the audience what you're seeing in these maps.
1: The first map is has very, very strong coloration. It looks a little bit like those exercises that we did in probably preschool where you put paint on a toothbrush and then rubbed against the bristles of the toothbrush and splashed little dots all over. But there's a concentration in the middle, very, very heavy concentration of blue. And around the blue at the bottom, there's a little bit of red with a touch of gold or I guess orange. And there's little specks of green here and there, but they're almost very, very hard to see. The other ones don't have as heavy of the concentration of the colors, it just seems like little, little dots. This one looks like an exercise where you took a gel pen and you just did little dots all over the page, but you kept the colors together. So you didn't mix the red and the blue, you just did a bunch of dots on one side, all red, and then a bunch of dots on the other side that are all blue. And again, little touches of green. I can barely see any yellow. And the third map is very similar. There's not a heavy concentration of color like I saw on the first one, but it's very, very clear where someone did the little dot exercises, all a big area in blue. The blue area does have some green and a little bit of yellow. And the couple of dashes of red and then all around it is red dots.
0: Yeah, so the second and third cities don't have as many people, which is why they're not as concentrated as the first one. It's a much bigger city. What I'm trying to get at here with these maps is the amount that they're segregated. Do you see much overlap between where the blue dots, the black areas, and the red dots, the white areas are?
1: No, it's very, very clear where one stops and the other one starts. The only, and and also what I pointed out in one of the maps, it was very clear that the, the parts that had different colors usually is the blue, so the black population mixed with the green dots and the yellow dots. You don't see the combination of colors in the predominantly red dot areas that are what you said were the white population areas, right?
0: Yeah. What cities do you think these are? I have no clue. So these are Philadelphia, New Orleans and Detroit. And the reason that I picked these three cities is because these are the three most segregated cities in the United States, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which is the branch of the Federal Reserve, which is responsible for collecting data and doing statistical stuff like this. And you notice that Detroit, Philadelphia, two of these are Northern Union cities. A lot of people think that segregation is something that is only a problem of the South and something that was only a problem in the past. And that's really not the case. Of the 10 most segregated cities in America, four, maybe five, if you count St. Louis as a southern city, are southern cities. So the problem is pretty evenly distributed between the north and the south. And in fact, a lot of the most segregated cities, Detroit, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Milwaukee, are northern cities. The way that segregation is usually measured is with the dissimilarity index, which usually runs from zero to one. Zero being where the composition of each neighborhood is proportional to the greater population. So if the greater region has 13% of black people and 10% of Hispanic and 60% white, each neighborhood will have the same. One would be where neighborhoods are completely segregated. So this neighborhood, every single person is black this neighborhood. Every single person is white the st louis fed they run their numbers from zero to 70 instead of zero to one but it's measuring the same thing the average in u.s cities is 45.13 so even the median u.s city is still pretty segregated detroit which is the most segregated city in america and is that one where it's got very stark lines there that map it's 68.52 out of 70 so extremely heavily segregated there are six cities that are over 60 on this index uh, do you want to guess what the least segregated city in America is?
1: Mm, you had me pull up a U.S. map now. I'm going to just give you a name of a city that I'm looking at. Um,
0: Topeka, Kansas. Because it's-, it's Portland. What? Portland, nearby where you live, is the least segregated city with over 100,000 people in America, according to the St. Louis Fed. Um, it's got a score of 27.33. But-
1: Okay, but I have to interject there. The history of racism in Oregon, I think, would have a lot to do with it. I mean, black people were not even allowed to live in the state, much less own land. So, of course, it's going to be less segregated because black people weren't even allowed to live here.
0: Yeah, I think that a big part of it is that Portland has very few black people, whereas Detroit or Philadelphia or New Orleans have a lot of black people.
1: Because the history of racism in the state is absolutely insane. And sadly, most people here don't even don't even know it. I think that's an episode that we need to cover.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. We can go into some Oregon history on that. So what I'm trying to get to here is about how segregation is happening still now. And it's happening all over the country. It's not just happening in Georgia and Tennessee and Alabama. So how did we get to this point? I think a necessary part to understanding this is the idea of things being de jure or de facto. De jure meaning in law and de facto meaning in fact. So even if something is not the legal reality, it can still be the actual reality on the ground. If you are not legally discriminating against people, you can still in actuality be discriminating against people outside of the law legal segregation, legal discrimination has been banned for a long time now. Brown versus the Board of Education abolished de jure school segregation in 1954. The Civil Rights Act made discrimination illegal in 1964. But the 1964 Civil Rights Act only applied to things that were openly, explicitly racist that said explicitly black people can't do this. It wasn't about things that were based on income. It wasn't about things that were based on where you live. And it only applied to public places in employment. That would change later with another law, but that's the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The way that we first started getting cities in the North and the West and all over the country outside of the South where Jim Crow was being enforced, to be this starkly segregated and this permanently segregated was during the recovery from the Great Depression and the New Deal. And someone once was talking to me about things that were racist in U.S. history, and she named the New Deal, and I was very confused at first because I didn't know about this history here, but I think this must have been what she was referring to. One of the programs of the New Deal to recover from the Great Depression offered loans for homes with a very low interest rate, but the government wanted to make sure that they weren't offering loans that were going to be defaulted on very quick that people weren't going to pay back. And so they created what was called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or H-O-L-C, to manage and administer these loans. And the H-O-L-C invented what we now call redlining. They created so-called residential security maps, which they wanted to use to determine which areas were most likely to default on mortgage payments. And so, say... The people who live in these areas very likely not get any mortgages in the lowest areas. Virtually no one ever got mortgages. There were four colors in these maps that they made. Green was the best. Blue was still desirable. Yellow was declining and red as in redlining was hazardous. These neighborhoods could be classified by income, by the state of repair of buildings, by the history of the neighborhood, by the percentage of people in the neighborhood who had families. But one of the main ways that they were classified was by the presence of either foreign-born or Negro populations. A majority black area in a city was almost certain to be redlined, and these areas were excluded from mortgage payments. The Civil Rights Act of 1968 made this technically illegal. Titles uh, 8 and 9 of the Civil Rights Act of 1978, or what's usually referred to as the Fair Housing Act, and they made discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, and in 1974, sex was added to that. They made that illegal in the financing, sale, or rental of housing. But all that that really did was drive it underground for a lot of people, for a lot of banks and companies. Companies would either make it no longer official policy that they wouldn't give mortgages to black areas, but still the people operating, the people giving the mortgages knew that that was the unofficial policy. Or they would keep it official policy, but just no longer publicly disclose what their lending practices were. In 1974, for instance, activists in Jamaica Plains, which is a neighborhood in Boston, got the city banking commissioner to disclose mortgage lending patterns by zip code, and they discovered that areas were still being redlined based on race. In 1974, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act required transparency in lending patterns, which made it illegal for banks to hide their lending practices the way that a lot of banks had. And that made it harder to redline. It eliminated one of the ways that people hit it, but it didn't eliminate it altogether. It even happens still today. In 2015, 2015, Evans Bank settled with the New York Attorney General for excluding black neighborhoods from lending maps. The Hudson City Savings Bank settled with the DOJ, the Department of Justice, for intentionally excluding Black and Latino neighborhoods from mortgages. The problem with pursuing these cases and enforcing these laws is that it's very hard to prove this case. You have to first prove that neighborhoods are being intentionally excluded, and then you have to prove that they are being intentionally excluded because of the race of the people that live there. And if there's no emails that are saying, don't give mortgages to the black neighborhoods or don't give mortgages to the Hispanic neighborhoods or the Asian neighborhoods, that's a very hard thing to prove. Another way that they enforced segregation was in schools. And I want you to take a look at this dirty little trick that people ran because after Brown versus the Board of Education, they couldn't say this is a white only school, this is a black only school. But take a look at this. I want you to pull up the fourth and fifth maps that I sent you. And the first one here is the Jefferson County School District, which is in Birmingham, Alabama, compared to the Mountain Brook City School District. And the other one is the Oakland Unified School District in California, compared to the Piedmont Unified School District. And tell me what the Mountain Brook City School District and the Piedmont Unified School District look like to you.
1: Okay, so hold on a second. In the Alabama... You're telling me that this whole mustard colored thing that is humongous is one school district. Yep. And the area in grey is this tiny little thing that's like I would say less than a tenth of the area of the mustard colored and mm-hmm. very similar with the California map. Am I am I looking at this correctly?
2: You like the are. Oakland
1: Unified School District is a humongous humongous area. That looks like a very, very fat horse running downhill that has a little birthmark in gray on his right butt cheek. Yeah?
0: You are looking at this correct. Okay. They're little enclaves within these bigger school districts. And would it surprise you if I told you that the Mountain Brook City School District and the Piedmont Unified School District are majority white areas? and Birmingham, Alabama, and Oakland, California, especially historically, are majority black areas?
1: Of course not. It wouldn't surprise me at all.
0: One of the tricks that they played after Brown versus the Board of Education was that they couldn't say this is a white-only school, but they could say this is a new school district and only the people living around here can go to school here. So they created new cities and new school districts so that they could carve out white neighborhoods and separate them from the black neighborhoods and have de facto school segregation. And that happened all around the country. These are two of the ones that are most visually obvious because they're almost completely surrounded by the larger school districts. But there are examples in Connecticut with the New Britain and Berlin school districts, in Monterey, California, in New York, in Omaha, there are examples. In Birmingham, Alabama here, Jefferson County School District is 58% non-white, and they spend about $9,220 per student per year. The Mountain Brook City School District is only about 4% non-white. They spend about $14,327 per student per year. The Oakland School District is 90% non-white, and they spend a little under $13,000 per student per year. In Piedmont, they're only 40% non-white, and they spend almost $18,000 per student per year. What do you think of that That little tactic there, Sylvia?
1: Well, I was going to ask you about the budgets, because I'm guessing some of it has to be theoretically proportional to the school population, but clearly it is off-balance where the predominantly white school districts get more money and more resources in both of these cases.
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later. But a big factor of that is the way we fund schools. And white people are, generally speaking, wealthier than black people. And the communities they live in, generally speaking, have higher property values and higher property taxes. And so even with the state of Alabama, for instance, giving more money per student to subsidize the Jefferson County School District than the Mountain Brook City School District, because they've carved out a much more affluent area than the rest of Birmingham, the Mountain Brook City School District has much higher budgets per student.
1: Systemic racism.
0: Mm hmm. So what are the effects of all of this? A lot of people online I've noticed have uh, kind of a debate about what should be the focus. Should it be class or race? What should be the thing that we try to focus on first? I don't think that that's really makes sense as a debate because I think that a lot of the problems with systematic oppression are based in class. They're based on the fact that white people make more money than black people and Hispanic people. The average white household makes about $65,777 a year. The average black household makes about $41,911 per year. So white households on average make about 58% more than black households. And non-Hispanic households on average make about 24% more than Hispanic households. White homeownership rates are about 76%. About 76% of white households own their own home for black households that's only 40.6%. Owning a home is the chief way that wealth is passed down intergenerationally. When your parents pass a home down to you, you have more family wealth, you are more likely to own a home yourself. The average homeowner has a household wealth of about $231,400, whereas the average renter has an average wealth household wealth of only about So that's a pretty stark difference. Renters not only have a lot less wealth, but a lot less stability and a lot fewer options than homeowners. Rents can go up whenever and that can drive you out of your home. But typically speaking, if you have a mortgage, you're going to have the same payments throughout that mortgage. Homeowners get more tax breaks than renters do. Homes that are owned tend to be in better condition than homes that are rented because a homeowner has more incentive to take care of it than a landlord does. That means that a lot more often you see rented homes having like lead paint or being in dangerous states of disrepair. Homeowners have the option to refinance or get a second mortgage if they have financial troubles. Homeowners just have a lot more stability and options. One example recently is that during COVID, homeowners could defer mortgage payments and tack them onto the back of their mortgage. So essentially, they're just like pressing pause and then picking up where they left off. Whereas renters were building up this pile of debt that they owed to the landlord. So when evictions are allowed again, and people have to pay these rent payments again, they're going to have thousands and thousands of dollars of debt and a lot of people are going to lose their homes. Whereas most homeowners are probably going to be fine if they were deferring their mortgage payments and if they can afford to pay their mortgage payments again. So the fact that people of color have been systematically excluded from owning homes, that for many, many, many years, it's been so much harder for people of color to get a mortgage and to pay for a home, is really putting them at an economic disadvantage and really exacerbating the class lines that we see between black and white people another one of the issues that we see with this is with schools schools are largely funded through property taxes and the value of your home and like we said areas where most people are renters tend to have lower property values than areas where most people are homeowners and that gets you into a vicious circle where because your home values are going down and there's less money going towards the schools schools are getting worse And because schools are getting worse, home values are going down. And because home values are going down, schools are getting worse. And because schools are getting worse, home values are going down. And you see how this perpetuates itself over and over and over. When we come to the police, having segregated neighborhoods makes it easier to discriminate in policing you can say it's not racial discrimination it's spatial discrimination if you are more likely to pull over a person in a certain neighborhood or to stop and frisk a person in a certain neighborhood you can say oh it wasn't because they were black or it wasn't because they were hispanic it was because this is a high crime neighborhood and it just so happens that these high crime neighborhoods are majority minority neighborhoods. It also drives different attitudes in policing. You see a lot of times that wealthier, usually whiter neighborhoods, police will have the attitude of, being a community defender where they're mostly responding like noise complaints and they're they're trying to make things nice for business owners they're trying to make things nice for tourists they're trying to make things nice for the people that live there and responding to the needs of the people that live there whereas in low income usually majority minority neighborhoods police become enforcers where they're trying to stop crimes before they happen do all this minority report stuff and they're They're looking at everyone in the neighborhood with suspicion. And I don't know if that's something people are intentionally doing or if this is just a cultural thing that develops. But the reason that it's possible is because these neighborhoods are so segregated. When we come to health, zoning tended to put industrial facilities closer to red, hazardous neighborhoods, and health codes were less strictly enforced in those neighborhoods. You see now that these majority-minority neighborhoods have much worse health effects than these historically not redlined neighborhoods. 15.2% of black children in America have elevated lead levels in their blood. Only 7.9% of white children in America have elevated lead levels in their blood. That's described as greater than two nanograms per deciliter. Black people are three times more likely than white people to die from conditions related to pollution. And lastly, in these neighborhoods, there's just not as much investment. People just don't view these neighborhoods as a place that will give them a return on their investment, where home values will go up because of all these things that we've talked about already. And because people aren't putting money into these neighborhoods and people aren't investing in these neighborhoods, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where, of course, home values don't go up because no one's doing anything to make them better. No one is repaving the roads. No one is investing in the schools. No one is developing these neighborhoods. And if they do, it ends up being a process that is exclusionary and drives out the existing homeowners instead of being one that builds up the existing homeowners. So you get into a cycle where neighborhoods get worse, and people make less money, and neighborhoods get worse, and all of these things come together to really put a hammer down on black and brown communities and trap them in cycles of poverty.
1: So, Ian, does it happen to be? And I'm just wondering if if you know how the money gets gets spent. So, is it that predominantly black areas have a lot larger area? or like, for example, a county or a city, depending on how you how you divided, the, these areas were predominantly black people. They get all lumped together and they get a certain budget. And so they have to use that budget to cover a bigger real estate, let's say, to, you know, pave more roads and things like that. Versus if it's a predominantly white area, it's a much smaller area with richer people. people. And so they have less roads to pave. And that's why it looks a lot better. And it's just this perpetual cycle. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, so most of the money that cities get is from property taxes, sales taxes, things like that. And those are very localized. And they're based on businesses and homes. And the more affluent an area is, the more money businesses will be making, the more money homes will be worth, and the more money will be going to that city. And you see these more affluent cities get carved out from larger, less affluent cities a lot of the time. An example is that near where I lived, Highland Park is a very affluent part of Dallas and it's its own town. People call it a part of Dallas, but it's really the town of Highland Park. Whereas the rest of Dallas, it doesn't get to benefit from all the taxes on homes and businesses and the like that are being made in Highland Park. That money gets to go to support the people who live in Highland Park, but not all the people that live around there. And, I mean, I'll give you three guesses to what the demographic differences between Highland Park and Dallas are.
1: Black, Asian, and Hispanic?
0: Yeah. And so, you see, it's very much like the school districts, the way that these more affluent communities get carved out to the detriment of the wider community. Highland Park is completely surrounded by Dallas. It could very easily be a part of Dallas and benefit millions of people instead of the thousands that live in Highland Park. So
1: does it have it, its own mayor that's separate from the mayor of Dallas?
0: It does. I don't know if they run with a city manager or a mayor or what, but it is not a part of the city of Dallas. So what are some solutions that we can look at for this? Um, One solution would be more resources for enforcement uh, with the DOJ and such to enforce these laws against redlining. Like I said, it's very hard to enforce these laws. And there are thousands of banks in America. It's hard to look at every single one and determine who is being discriminatory. It's much like the way that the DOJ doesn't have the resources to investigate every police department in America. So they only end up doing these pattern and practice investigations when a police department like Louisville or Minneapolis makes the news. Zoning reform could also go a long way towards this, allowing more areas to have high density housing compared to the vast swaths of most cities that are exclusively zoned for single family homes would allow low income people to integrate into what are now higher income neighborhoods much easier. You could offer loans to minority homeowners, more resources to minority schools, more investment in minority owned businesses, trying to break these vicious cycles I was talking about. Bussing is a very famous example of, an, a, of a solution people tried for this, where they bring people that live in these lower income neighborhoods and bring them to schools and in higher income neighborhoods that have more money and more resources. You could integrate these enclaves like Highland Park, like Mountain Brook City, like Piedmont. um, And you could change the way that schools are funded. Maybe instead of the money from this city going to just this city's schools, you could have maybe even partly that, but have at least part of the money go towards a state fund, for instance, or a regional fund, where it gets distributed through all of the school districts. So you don't have this disparity of these really, really wealthy, really, really good schools and these really, really poor, really, really bad off schools. And kids have a much more equal chance. During the primaries this year, uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, when they were running for president, they each put forward a proposal to try to deal with segregation in cities like this. They're all kind of similar and they kind of go the way you would think. Uh, Pete Buttigieg's plan, I think, is the most uh, the the least uh, progressive. Elizabeth Warren's is the most progressive. Uh, Kamala Harris's is, is in the middle. And obviously, I think just through the fact of her being the vice president, I think Kamala Harris's plan is probably most likely to go into effect if any of the three of them do. But her plan would offer $100 billion for down payments and closing costs for people that have lived in public housing or rented for 10 plus years in redlined neighborhoods. And the area must also still be a low to moderate income neighborhood, and recipients must make less than a maximum income. In Elizabeth Warren's plan, down payment assistance for first time home buyers in formerly redlined areas and low income neighborhoods that experience other forms of segregation can be used to buy homes anywhere, and that's paid for by an estate tax. And in Pete Buttigieg's plan, which he would call the Community Homestead Act, it would purchase abandoned properties and allow residents to buy them with grants. Uh, Grantees must have made less than the median income in the last five years and lived in that area for three years or more and lived in a redlined area for three years or more. So what do you think of those, Sylvia? What do you think should be done about these issues
1: so basically all, all three of them are trying to help people that haven't been able to build you know get their own homes or be recipients of generational wealth and have lived in these areas that were deemed back in the day as non-desirable all of those three programs are ways that you could help the people there buy properties in these places or like in Elizabeth Warren's case you said buy somewhere else if they don't want to live there they could they could move somewhere else but either way the idea is to help people that have been the victims of the systemic racism like redlining is get properties that they can own and that theoretically over time will appreciate in value and they could benefit from that that increase in value and then if they if they die pass them over to their the rest of their family etc right
0: yeah exactly so it's recognizing the fact that people who live in these neighborhoods a lot of the times don't have the wealth to pay a down payment to pay closing costs and all of that and don't have as much access to mortgages or may have higher interest mortgages and trying to even the playing field with that and give these people more of an opportunity to become homeowners in the case of Elizabeth Warren's plan, even to move into other neighborhoods where perhaps they break up this segregation and Those lines on that map, those maps I showed you aren't so stark.
1: I think no matter, I mean, obviously, we're not going to get one specific plan to go through. But I think in all three cases, I like how you laid it out. Like, this is the least progressive. This is the most progressive. This is somewhere in the middle. But either way, all of them are recognizing that there's a group of people that have been screwed over for almost 100 years and that the government needs to do something about it. And that even though, like you explained earlier, the formal redlining and the formal practices of discrimination that prevented mostly Black but also Latino and other immigrants from getting loans to buy properties uh, is is still happening, is just happening in other ways. And we have examples of that, uh, just like... Black and Latinos were more likely to get some of these predatory loans in the most recent housing crisis. And so it just perpetuates the cycle of like they get screwed over by the banks. So then they default and then they're in, they foreclose and then they don't have enough to go and get something else. And it just keeps the cycle going. And all of those plans that you laid out are ways that we can eventually start to, I'm not saying fix it magically, but start repairing what was done, right?
0: Yeah, I think all three of those plans, Judges uh, and Warren's and Harris's, are all, they're all along the lines. I think the differences are in the details. I do think that you're going to have to look at schools with this also, though, and I do think you're going to have to look at reforming the way that schools are funded and making sure that more of those resources can be distributed more equitably. I I think that's going to have to go along with these ideas of helping people buy homes.
1: I really like your idea of having some of the the money that goes towards the local schools stay within the local schools and then a a percentage of that, uh, especially, you know, depending on how wealthy the neighborhood is, to a local like pot of money that gets distributed, uh, redistributed, let's say to help some of those schools that have less resources for a, a bigger school population or that just don't get as much in school budgets because they get less in taxes from the residents, right? So that was, a, I think that's a good suggestion.
0: Yeah. So why don't we go talk to Coffrey about this? Let's do it. Today, Sylvie and I are going to talk to Coffrey J. Coffrey J is a hip hop artist and activist. He runs a nonprofit organization called Hip Hop for Change in Oakland, California, which tries to teach about the history of discrimination and racial justice through arts. They go into schools and they teach children about these issues and they teach children to express themselves artistically through hip hop and other means of expression. All right, thanks for joining us, Coffrey.
2: Of course, thanks for having me, y'all.
0: Yeah. So we talked in this podcast about redlining and housing inequity and all of that. And so I want to start by asking you about your personal experience. A lot of people think that segregation is something that only happened in the South. And we talked in the first half of this podcast about how that's not the case. Places like California and New York, while they never had the legally mandated segregation that the South had during the Jim Crow era, they nonetheless had segregation that was because of the choices of people that were made outside of legal mandates you're from san francisco which is a fairly heavily segregated city even today you're from hunters point a predominantly black area of san francisco and a part of the city that was redlined and now you work in oakland also a fairly heavily segregated city even today so the first thing i want to ask you is if you can talk about your personal experience and what it's like to grow up as a black boy and then a black man living in segregated redlined areas like that
2: yeah um I had a I had a unique childhood, you know, growing up in, in San Francisco Hunters Point, it was like the socioeconomic center of blackness ever since the Fillmore district got wiped out culturally. Um, but Hunters Point is that center, so it was a safe space for me. You know, I know you know in the segregated San Francisco Bay Area, a lot of people look at places like Hunters Point as these Violent, dangerous places. And with poverty, there does come violence. You know what I'm saying? Um, people are struggling and breaking laws to eat food. But for me, as a young black man, that was my safe space. That was the place where I knew people on the streets. I knew, you know, my friend's parents that would keep me in line if I needed to be kept in line. Like we were a real community. And I'll never have a place like that ever again. That place is gone now. You know what I'm saying? Because of gentrification and things like that. But I remember my parents working way too many jobs, trying to raise enough money to put me into a private school. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to go to a Montessori school that was, of course, outside the hood. So every single morning, I, I took this re- really unique bus ride from safety and culture to a place where I had to learn how to fit in. You know what I'm saying? I had to learn what was right, and, and I had to get the talk, you know what I'm saying? And I was one of four black kids in a school of over 400 kids. Um, it was very interesting to see these kids walk around. And they had everything. and They knew they had everything and they, they knew they had everything so much they didn't even have to know it. It was just, you know, it was just what it was for them. And for me, I was like, wow, I'd go over to their houses uh, and they'd have three story houses that blew my mind. The one family could have three stories, you know what I'm saying? And all my friends had all the toys in the world and they, they lived on streets where you know there was trees and it smelled nice in the neighborhood And there's no trash on the sidewalks and i remember when i was in first grade walking away from that school going to catch the 44 bus 44 o'shaughnessy to take me back to my safety i this was the first time i got called the n-word for just crossing the street apparently so white guy in the car and thought it appropriate that i didn't stop that i should be called the n-word I had another talk that day when I got home, you know, so San Francisco literally is one of the most segregated places in in the world, probably. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's unique. And it's not just the lunch count, like the lunch room where all the Asian kids in high school sat here and the black kids sat here and the Latino kids sat here, or it wasn't just my middle school James Lick where in, in 94, there would literally be the Brown and black populations of kids having race wars against each other a couple times a year. And I'm just like, Oh, don't hit me. I'm not <laughs> trying to fight. But it was really the adults you know that looked at me like i was not supposed to be outside of my neighborhood that was my my biggest experience with what redlining meant when i was young it was just a thing where i knew once i crossed third street and crossing the bayview and then once i got past bayview i was like not safe so you know not even knowing the economic situations around redlining or the like debt peenage and, and uh, you know debtors prisons and whatnot and police brutality and violence and higher rates of interest for loans and things like that yeah it, it was just it was still tough just being just being in first grade like learning about what black meant for my 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 own ability to move through space yeah I mean I, I could go on um I could go on but I think you know Going into my activism and getting out of my teens, learning about the fact that my parents were getting charged higher interest rates to start the restaurant business, you know to, to at least this restaurant that we had on Third Street. That was one of the best ways that I saw how economically disadvantaged we were and trying to actually establish ourselves and what my parents had to deal with fighting and struggling when we had the best barbecue in the world you know what i'm saying and i see crappy barbecue restaurants on divisadero get all the business in the world and we got the best barbecue and they're like boiling their ribs and stuff like that so i don't know it's just a shame that the, the the constant nicks and cuts that we get from just individual personal racism uh, to have to make it make it through the economic challenges that 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 come with just having brown skin and living around brown people. Uh, It's, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame.
0: So official like policy redlining in a, an official capacity was abolished a long time ago, but that really kind of just drove it underground for a lot of people. Can you talk about, and I think you alluded to this with the interest rates for your parents restaurant, but can you talk about any instances you saw of where Someone was not something that's out of just an environmental factor of that this area is poorer, but someone was intentionally discriminating like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's still like there was it was it Dublin or Pleasanton that just had a charter or something like that, and their in their cities uh they just had a city charter that that still prohibited black people from being able to own properties. So like there's still these these i don't even want to call them like old school laws that are still on the books because they're still on the books in some places like mm-hmm. i think san ramon uh you know a suburb posted here had one of those in their charter city charter as well but you know it's definitely difficult uh when you start fighting racism it gets sneaky you know what i'm saying and so you know i don't think that ford would say hey you can't you you know you have to pay higher interest rates for being brown, but they just got taken to federal court in twenty nineteen for giving brown and Latino people higher interest rates for their loans. In San Francisco, if I have an ethnic name, you know, just like anywhere in this nation, I'm less likely to get a callback, right? It's the same prejudice and this bias that is the thing that is the vehicle for disallowing black people to move into Pacific Heights, you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, people to own homes in the Richmond. So when the market is is pretty much based on real estate agents and their own biases, uh, their own biases. Yeah, of course. Like you get calls and I remember even myself trying to find apartments for my family. Um, you call somebody, they ask you your name and you know, that's where it starts, right? That's where the racism is going to start. And now I know if I'm just trying to get an apartment myself, even with the great credit score that I fought so hard to get, you know what I'm saying? Even having a great job, uh, at least outwardly, it looks like I can afford a nice apartment under $2,000 a month, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, I, like I just tried to get an apartment for my family and my, my young daughter, uh, trying to get her out of the hood and get into the Oakland Hills where there's not all this carcinogenic smog and whatnot. And it was just no dice. Like I applied, I said, babe, we're going to apply anyway, but. It was just no dice. And I know when I go to see a house and it's me, uh, my young wife, my young daughter, and we're brown, right? And there's these white families that are there with me. I'm like, yeah, right? That's the basis of the redlining today. It's just people don't want to rock with us. They, don't, they They see us as a risk or they just think of us as, I don't know, what they see in the media. You know what I'm saying? So right now, it's less about laws. It's more of this laissez-faire. You know, we just don't like black people. And, and that's the reason why we have these these segregational lines in the bay area because people just don't mess with us they don't mess with us so much that san francisco hunter's point in 1976 was about 47 percent african-american now it's about six percent african-american um because when people went to go buy these homes they didn't sell them back to us because Real estate agents generally don't trust black people and it shows and it shows in how they speak to us, right? When we go to talk about the amenities and apartment and we can see and hear in their tone, they don't, they're not going to sell us this house. You know what I'm saying? All that gentrification because of this kind of like mental redlining in these real estate agents' minds leads to us losing houses, us losing our jobs because we're trying to scrounge to do things, us losing you know, all kind of stuff like our health, our mental health, you know what I'm saying? Just because of all the pain and anguish and this stuff really leads to death. It leads to people dying and giving them hope. It's a shame. It leads to people breaking laws to eat food. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, that that is the vehicle right now. And there's even another capacity to this because people say, why are black people keeping homes in Hunters Point? They say, oh, they don't have, we don't have financial literacy. <laughs> Right? It's always our fault, right? They, they made up this this lie about black people being super hesitant for, towards vaccinations when that's not the case. Over 65% of black people plan to get vaccinated, but they had to say, oh, black people just don't want it because they have to put the blame on us for why we don't have access. It's the same thing with this gentrification and this, this laissez-faire redlining. They're, oh, why are black people losing their homes? Oh, because them Negroes don't know how to keep a house. You know what I'm saying? They don't know what to do. this is the most paternalistic crap uh, that we hear all the time because I argue that black women who you know are, are broken poor know how to you know spend a twenty dollar bill more than anybody else in America. you know what I'm saying. And I think it's that's that's the thing. We've got to get past this this blaming black people for losing their homes and starting to blame some of the systemic racism and the individual racism that's the main vehicle for this modern day redlining that we' are experiencing today.
0: Yeah, um, I think about the vaccination, that could be a whole nother episode topic going into how race and the medical system have played together. But maybe we'll say that for another episode. (laughs) I want to talk some about gentrification, because that's something you brought up. And the area where you live, the Bay Area, and especially Oakland, San Francisco, are famous for gentrification. And that's something that worries a lot of people, because it can raise prices, drive people out of their homes, out of their neighborhoods. But I feel like there's a balance where you don't want to say... Let's not develop low income neighborhoods. You want to say, let's not give low income people better houses, better shops, better restaurants, better, you know, repair the streets, all that stuff. You still want to invest in those neighborhoods, but you don't want to drive people out of their homes. So you have to try to find ways to invest in uh, something that's in a way that's going to build up the community where that maybe even if prices rise, people are making more money now and they can afford that. You're building up local businesses, black and brown owned businesses, uh, you're building better schools, things like that. But that's obviously a super hard and complicated thing to do that someone could write an entire book about. So if you could talk a little bit about some of the things that would be valuable investments in these communities that could try to achieve that.
2: Absolutely. There is this this interesting play between you know investing in a community, making it beautiful, right? And then wanting people to stay. I kind of want to separate that because right now people are experiencing gentrification and people are being kicked out of their homes, right? And what it seemed like is Oakland and San Francisco were waiting for black people to leave before they were like, okay, we got enough of them out. Let's go ahead and build the T train, right? Let's go ahead and and allow people to start playing around like Merritt again. You know what I'm saying? When they used to criminalize black people roller skating around you know what I'm saying, and barbecue. So what I think should have happened is they should have done these investments 30, 40 years ago and valued the Black people that were there uh, and made sure that we had the places to relax and release and the places to educate ourselves and to make sure that our vehicles aren't breaking down because of potholes. That's, that's the problem. People go through these rich neighborhoods and wonder why they don't have potholes, right? Well, the, first off, they fix them really fast if they do, right? Uh, and, and, And to be quite honest, man, we have more traffic in the hood. We have more people crammed in the hood. And our roads have been just filled over with like fake layers, so all the degradation in the substrata of the road is already jacked. They're not gonna fix it. We need to invest in our communities right now, and we gotta hope that Black people get to enjoy it enough before we get kicked out. What we need to do is, first off, who's in the decision making places of where money goes cuz in Oakland right now half our money is going to the damn police department to police who <laughs> black people right when we smoke less weed than white folks and you know right now like it, it, it just it just this whole defund, move, defund the police movement makes a lot of sense. If you if you want to stop crime, you want to stop violence, well, you have to give people stuff to do. Idle hands, right? Uh, and and kids are looking for their power, their worth, their strength. I found that in rapping and my creative expression. Why don't we have these community centers? Why don't we have the streets paved in front of the community centers and bike lanes so kids can safely bike to these community centers and find out who they are and what they want to be? You know, right now we're working with the California parks in the, hundreds, sorry, in the Candlestick Regional Park, right there by where Candlestick Park used to be. And we're doing a summer camp there and, and trying to have an environmental equity summit. But the problem is, is the whole streets out there literally are flooded halfway. They have the biggest potholes. You almost can't even drive down there. And the school, Bret Hart, that's about three quarters of a mile away. Those kids can't even walk to the damn park. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's an equity issue because they're fixing roads right? But, but why don't they fix ours? So it is It is sad to see Black people leaving, brown people leaving, getting kicked out. You know, Fortunately, the fruit veil hasn't really been gentrified too much yet, but it's on its way, you know what I'm saying? Hunters Point's got the best weather in the city, right? I'm surprised we lasted that long, you know what I'm saying? Um, But it's going to happen. My, my goal is to get brown and Black people in charge of leadership and in charge of what's being produced there, where money's going, get money out of just policing black people and and make it a protect and service kind of thing, right? For everybody equitably and start investing in brown and black communities. Matter of fact, do a little bit more because y'all owe us, you know, not y'all, but yeah, the government owes us, right? They need to just give us the money now and let us decide what we'd like to build. There's an organization in Oakland, I'm blanking on it right now, but they're talking about, you know, the fact that the police budget has raised 50 percent in Oakland in the last like decade and the cultural budget has decreased. And it's only one point four million dollars versus like billions and millions, tens of millions and millions to police just black and brown people. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do they want? You know, what are they going to do? So I don't know. I, I, I'm i very I'm, I'm never hopeful when it comes to like white investments in brown and black neighborhoods and and Oakland and Libby Shaft, like really taking a hard effort to stop gentrification. I am, but I do hope that we can get some investment in the community before all of us.
1: What are some things that people can do? Because I definitely want to talk to you about that issue of representation. If white people are making all the decisions, then they're not taking into account the needs of the black and brown and immigrant people. Uh, And so it's a perpetual cycle that needs to be broken by bringing in more minorities and people of color to those places where the decisions are made. But there's the whole chicken and egg thing. You don't see anybody in those places that shows you that it is possible, then people don't run. So how do we break that cycle so that we get these people up to those tables to make the decisions?
2: Well, you know, right now I'm really excited because there's a lot of brown women running (laughs) and a lot of brown women in America winning. You know what I'm saying? So that's a place of hope. We do have some really like super amazing city council people like Carol Thief and, oh, Fortunato. Uh, But in San Francisco, the only black school supervisor just got disempowered and taken away from her job because of a tweet she made calling Asians to action over their anti-black four years ago, and they kicked her out of the school board. Right? This is white San Francisco. When you go to these city council meetings in white San Francisco, liberals, San Francisco, we start to realize that liberalism and white supremacy go hand in hand too. It's not just a conservative thing. So we see all these message boards talking about homeless people like they are scum and Dirt and these are the liberal progressive San Franciscans, right? We see all these people blaming black and brown kids for their education, their position in education, and that's that's the shame. You know, the shame is, is that, yeah, people are running for mayor, black and brown women are running for city council. Uh, and and in San Francisco, it's just getting harder and harder and harder and harder. I think it's easier and easier in Oakland, but we still have some really fake mayors that really did not care about the people, like Libby Shaft. We call her out right now. She's she's a political fox and not even a good one at that. She barely cares to like, you know, hide what she's doing. But yeah, I think we do need more Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's and and Rashida Talib's and, and, and whatever. Like we need brown women to run. <laughs> I think that's how we're gonna make it. And I'm really I'm really excited at the potential of today you know, for these culture wars to be happened that are sparked by right wing outrage at brown people getting political power. So I'm happy at that. And I think I'm ready for this culture war to happen. And that happens when we put brown women and elevate them and get them in places like Stacey Abrams, like y'all win, y'all just win, you know what I'm saying? So. We do need more representation. It's a hell of a fight to have representation. And once we do get representation, we still face getting ousted from our representative positions by white racists who who make a big stink even worse than they're doing with the recall of Gavin News. On a local level, these fights can be really nasty, but it's, it's a fight, make no mistake. We are fighting the beast and the beast does not stop once you get elected either. That's why Barack Obama could only mention he was black like four times in eight years and the world blew up every time. He said, Tamir Rice looks like the son I would have had and the world blew up, right? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. You don't fight fights because you know you're gonna win. You fight them because it's the right thing to do. And I don't know that brown people are going to win. I don't know that the arc of the moral universe uh, you know, in relation to America bends towards truth. I don't know because right now it's bending away from it real fast and real hard. But I am here for that fight. So I'm fighting for resources. I'm fighting to bring money back to our community. I'm fighting to get the means of self-determination. So if we can't change Oakland, at least we might be able to change some of the opportunities for, for black and brown people and, and all the white allies that want to rock with us, too.
0: I think every time it's a kind of two steps forward, one step back, where every time there is some progress, especially racial progress, there's a backlash, you know, after the Civil War, uh, slavery was abolished. But then you saw the Ku Klux Klan get established and Jim Crow instituted when the civil rights uh, movement started. You saw the... Freedom Summer murders and the murder of Emmett Till and all of those lynchings, thousands of lynchings, the burning of the Freedom Riders buses, you're seeing as the Black Lives Matter movement is in swing, you're seeing another backlash. following Barack Obama's election, you see a backlash. But it is significant to me that the backlash has never been the winner yet, so... That's how I like to look at it.
2: <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that's. I mean, I feel you. You know what I'm saying? There's also another way to look at it too. You know what I'm saying? I guess there's millions of ways to look at it. And when I think about it, it's great that I don't have to pick cotton all day. You know what I'm saying, right? It's really great that at least there's a semblance of equality that I can send my Afro-Mashika daughter to any school she wants to go to, regardless of race. You know what I'm saying? But I also say that. Racism has never been solved. There's no winner, right? Racism has just had to wiggle and move and change based off of white sentiments of their own personal pride and ethics. You know what I'm saying? It's not like we're less segregated than we've ever been. We're more segregated than we've ever been, right? There's more Black women dying during labor than there were during slavery right now. We just, like, I, I don't know, there's more Black people being... Taking, they're taking their lives away than ever before in history. So the fight against racism, we're not even close to winning that. That has never changed. You know what I'm saying? This country is arguably just as racist as it was when they first brought Africans here. Definitely in the fight of racism and, and this... this this need to try to make America the, the beautiful place that white folks decided it should be a while ago. Like they're fighting for that idea of America. And because they fight for that idea of America, sometimes they have to concede and say, oh, okay, no, 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 y'all get to vote. Don't worry. I mean, Emmett Till, that was horrible. That was horrible. Okay, y'all get civil rights. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes there's these little these little small wins like during Reconstruction, right? But that was highly performative. The North did not care about us at all. They only cared about, you know, you know, getting back vengeance at the South, right? Okay, we're gonna put Negroes in power now, y'all gonna hate it. But after a while, they got tired of that. They didn't want to work for us. They didn't care about working and protecting us and making sure there was actually equality, right? They, they lost the taste for, for sticking it to the South. You know what I'm saying? So there are a lot of performative steps. And there's also a lot of accidental change that has to be made because, the idea of America was a little too tarnished uh, for, for white sentiment. So yeah, we definitely don't think that this young kid Emmett Till should be you know brutalized and have his genitals cut off and beat down and then tied to a, a cotton gin or something like that and then suck into the, yeah, that's not, white people, we don't do that. So, okay, y'all can have civil rights. Like, that was damn near an accident. that that civil rights happened, we got lucky. And that's the thing that I want want us to realize, all these little political and legal wins that we've won have been just just the tip of the iceberg of what we've been fighting for politically and legally in the last 400 years. This is just the stuff that accidentally happened in white supremacy America. So I don't know if it's taking two steps forward or one step back. I think it's like we're just back and every once in a while we come up and take a step But that step is performative. It doesn't really change the the paradigm of death, destruction, sadness, like hopelessness for brown and black people, for white folks to ever treat us equally and give us an equal chance at life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. I don't think we I don't think I have to pick cotton. You know what I'm saying? I'm not in shackles like people aren't going to like whip me. But if I make one mistake when I walk outside of my office today, yeah, I can be in handcuffs and shackles, and I can be beaten down, and I could be murdered and killed every single day, every day. And when I walk in liberal Berkeley, the cops, they pass by, they look at me. They don't look at the 200 other white people out there. They look at me. We make eye contact. And every once in a while, I flip them off just to let them know. You know what I'm saying? Like, forget y'all for looking at me like that. So I don't know how much progress we've made. Fixing racism. I'm not sure we fixed that at all. We're still having indigenous peoples fighting to not have pipelines go across their, their 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 land that they've been relegated to after owning everything, right? You know what I'm saying? This is almost akin to what's happening in Palestine right now, right? And half the nation says Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization and Atifa is a terrorist organization. I don't know how far we've progressed as people, right? We we have one a modicum of a percent of all the legal challenges and moral fights that we fought. But I think that was just accidental because white America said, Oh no, 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 we, we're not we're not evil, right? This is not we're not racist. I think that's that's the only progress we've made. Uh and I'm I'm not hopeful that we're gonna hold on to our hegemony. I'm not I'm not hopeful we won't descend into some some republic that's run by some militant white dude that's supported by rabid racist militant right wing people that own all the guns in America. So I don't know. I hope they don't come to the hood.
0: I'm going on a bit of a tangent with this, but I think it's uh you talk about reconstruction, I think this is a good example of that is that back then this was when the Republican Party was still the party that was the in favor of abolishing slavery and uh, all of that, but there were enough radical republicans and John Brown types in the Republican Party that I think that there was support for as much equal rights as you could get in the South during reconstruction, but when the election of 1876 came around then the Republican Party was made to choose between power and rights for black people. And as much as there were people pushing for equal rights, they chose power over that. And I think that's pretty representative of what you're talking about. We think of these problems as being something that's driven by the right wing. But a lot of the places that have the biggest problems are in cities that are run by liberal or progressive people. San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago... Uh, People who would probably tell you that they support racial justice and that they're progressive and that Black Lives Matter and all of that. And you work with a lot of local leaders in the Bay Area. So what's it like to work with leaders in these cities that would probably say that Black Lives Matter and that they're progressive and all that? but that are running the cities that face the biggest problems oftentimes. What are their attitudes? And when you raise these issues, how have they responded to you?
2: Yeah, first off, I, I wouldn't even say that a lot of places that have these issues are liberal. I'd say all America is dealing with the same white supremacy. It's just different tactics like Malcolm X said, Political foxes and political bulls, right? And I was having this conversation with a, a, a rabid alt right racist on Facebook the other day. I just got banned too because <laughs> I, I follow Ben Shapiro and Glenn Beck because I like to sharpen my rhetorical sword from time to time. But he was like, Oh, well, aren't liberal, why do you vote liberal? I was like, Well, it's not like liberals aren't racist. It's not like liberals aren't even. Caring to take the steps necessary to create real economic equality. I don't think liberal machine has the stomach to enact the laws and the rules needed to actually bring actual equality. That would literally be like, give me half your money and here you go, black and brown people and indigenous people. You own Ohio now. Take it. You know what i'm saying like they're not ready for that so that means that liberals are comfortable with us slowly dying too it's like not even a thing but liberals aren't stopping my my ability to vote <laughs> you know what i'm saying like liberals aren't like trying to stop health care and, and invest in universal child care like uh they're not trying to stop that so black people don't vote 90 percent 95% for liberal Democrats, because we believe they're on our side. We're not stupid. Uh, we vote for them because they're not actively trying to dismantle our rights like the GOP is. Like they literally have based their party on the Southern strategy. So yeah, that doesn't mean that we have wool over our eyes and we think that the progressive party are the Nancy Pelosi, which mind you, I think Nancy Pelosi is great. She's a powerhouse, you know what I'm saying? But I I also wish she wasn't there. (laughs) We had somebody like Ilhan Omar to be the speaker of the house, you know what I'm saying? Then we can get some real stuff done Um, because what we need is so far above what liberals and progressives, Progressives, really, because I think what we are is just uh, what I think Democrats are is just the center right now, if not a little center right. It's that's why it's still a place for racism. You know, it's it's still the people that say, "Oh yeah, we love black and brown people, diversity, and inclusion." But I bet you Nancy Pelosi probably grabbed her baby when she passed me on the street if she just looked up real quick. Right, biases are always there. I bet you her family members would do it too, and she wouldn't even tell them not to do that. You know, so that that's the problem. It's like. Right now, we have such a high mortality rate with black women in hospitals. What's Nancy Pelosi gonna do about that? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's Lee Schaff gonna do about that, right? Nothing, not at all, you know what I'm saying? So that's my thing. When I look at leaders, especially liberal leaders here, I guess we're talking about liberal white leaders too, because most of black and brown people in Oakland, California are tired and fed up. (laughs) They're like, they're like, nah uh but when we're talking about leaders, like especially with my work with Hip Hop and Change, people reach out all the time and they reach out to try to work with us. And some do it because they know this is what their youth need and they need to hear. But some people just I, I know that sound when people call me like, hey, can you come do your hippity hoppity for our youth? They're trying to check a box and whatnot. So a lot of times people call us leaders, call us, hey, do you want to work with us? We had BlackRock call us. BlackRock wanted to give us $50,000 because they wanted to start investing in black people. We said no, right? And they're like, I don't know if they're conservative or liberal-minded, but I guess they're trying to get woke now. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, stop investing in private prisons. I don't need that 50, well, we did need the 50K. You know what I'm saying? We actually really, really needed the 50K during COVID. but, But what we really need from them as an organization more than money is for them to stop funding the two largest private prison industries in the world. So, liberal-minded folks, my job is to first protect Black and brown people, including myself, right, from having to deal with the trauma of having some somebody like halfway during our meeting say, oh, you're, you're, can I touch your hair <laughs> or something like that, <laughs> or touch me inappropriately in any way or whatever, or say some really, really, you know, microaggressive stuff, but but yeah, I'm always trying to see, is this, is this just performative? Are they coming because they want to check a box? Are they coming because they're a real ally? And I think that's the biggest thing for me when dealing with, and let's call it what it is, white liberalism, right? Because racism and liberalism is like damn near mutually inclusive. You know, it's almost even more difficult to deal with liberal racism because those are people who say, oh, no, I love it black people. But yeah, they'll tell their, they'll, they'll like grab their kids extra hard and, and instill those early ideas of be careful black people are are dangerous. Now, I just took my daughter to the zoo on Sunday for the first time. She's two and almost a half. And you know, when I come around the corner, I see the kids, they just run back to their parents. They do. As soon as they see me, oh, they run back to their parents. And I live in the liberal Bay Area in this liberal zoo with all these progressive white families and their kids are running as soon as they see me. So what have they been teaching their kids? They would never tell me that, oh, Black people are dangerous, right? But what are their kids learning? How many times did they grab their kid, you know, out of bias real quick and be like, come over here when a Black person walks by? They do that. And the white liberal leaders do that too.
1: Similar to the BlackRock example you just gave us, it's like they're checking a box by saying Black Lives Matter, but their actions are very different. BlackRock is offering you the $50,000 so that they can check that box saying Hey, we support organizations led by black leaders, but we fund private prisons. It's,
2: it... It, you know, that that is a perfect example of a lot of white liberal liberalism. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, they, they got a knife in my back and they're smiling in my face. And I'm like, hey, thank you for the smile. Please take the knife out of my back. Right. And there's also one in my kidney, too. And I, as a matter of fact, I don't know if that can be taken out right now. So please pay for me to go to the doctor to get this stuff out. You know, saying it's just it's the death of a thousand cuts while we get smiles in our face. You know what I'm saying? So when I think of progress, I get angry. But right? I think of liberal, progressive racism. I get extra mad. I'm swimming in this stuff. Matter of fact, I almost take a vacation and go to the South just to get some of that conservative stuff that's really easier to deal with. So you know where you stand, at least with the GOP. But yeah, that is what it is. The smile on your face. And there's another Malcolm X quote. If you stick a knife 10 inches in me and pull it out nine, one inch, it's not progress. I still have a knife in me. You know what I'm saying? If you put a knife in me 10 inches and take it out six inches, that is not progress. You know what I'm saying? And that's what we have today. We're more segregated than ever, right? We're more economically depressed than we were before we had our own communities taken away from us, right? We didn't get integrated. We got economically integrated into white capitalism, right? And we got still segregated and separated by the project systems, by public transportation bills and all that on purpose, plus the redlining, the blacklisting, and police brutality killing us when we stepped outside of our neighborhoods. My dad told me when he used to walk past San Bruno Street in San Francisco, the fire department would beat young black boys. The fire department. Yeah, yeah, it was crucial. And, and well, you
1: said it at the beginning of the episode as a young boy, was it first grade going to the Montessori school, knowing when you had to code switch once you changed neighborhoods because you can't behave a certain way, the way that you are comfortable being because you have to fit the mold of the white people, right?
2: It me 25 years to, to learn how to stop code switching and I still deal with that every day.
1: I don't know how to do it yet. I still code switch and I... I think I need like two drinks in me to not do it so that I just relax. Otherwise I'm in this, I don't want to say like defense mode. I just, I fit their mold. Cause otherwise, obviously it's different being a white Latina, but they, they just put us in this category.
2: And- oh yeah. Just throw some rolled R's at them and just, just, yeah. Just, right. I don't know. I just, it gets, it, I just got so mad. And you know, I was fortunate enough to start Hip Hop For Change, which really has helped me out on my own progression as a human being, right? Dealing with my own internal patriarchy and my own personal advocacy for my own identity. I've learned so much over the eight years running this nonprofit that now I don't code switch as, well, as much. You know what I'm saying? It's a constant struggle to get to step off. But yeah, no, I wear shirts like this every day. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And I love walking in Costco with these shirts. And, And I love being on Zoom cameras and lectures from Tulane and Stanford wearing this. You know, normally I have a gold grill in my mouth when I talk to folks in meetings just to make sure they know. You know what I'm saying? You're going to respect me for who I am. And it's my job to normalize people like me for my community. So young, black and brown people have it easier walking around being themselves. You know, So,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you mention your work with Hip Hop for Change. I think it's a good moment. You um, do you want to go ahead and tell us you've got an event that's coming up uh, two days after this episode airs, I think you want to tell us about that?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Hip Hop for Change is built on three pillars. One is grassroots advocacy, giving jobs to people to stand in affluent, mostly white neighborhoods, uh, having conversations about the co-optation of hip hop and racism, and then taking funds back from there and those communities back to communities that don't have. Uh, We also do education, taught 26,000 kids the history of hip hop, K through 12, half for free because we don't turn down broke kids. Uh, but we're going to break and wrap and do graffiti, learning positive, healthy identity. And the third pillar is our events, our social justice-oriented events, uh, where we can work with organizations like Greenpeace, Sierra Club, and they can give us the funding up front to hire people like Talib Kweli, Black Thought, and big artists for our Environmental Justice Summit coming up in two days from now, May 20th. If you missed it, it'll be online. But yeah, we have a space where we can have panel discussions with local eco-justice activists, and they can talk about things like the Navy Hunters Point shipyard and lead and Fruitvale districts. And we have local organizations that are allowed to table and to speak their truth and connect with local communities. So it's this really interesting cross-cultural experience where you have a lot of the environmental folks that tend to be white, right? Tend to be older, mixing with a lot of the hip hop community that comes out to hear groups like Earth Amplified that raps about food justice and social justice and and things like that. And we can book the local artists. So we create this economic space that's free in all ages for the community to come in. And it's no longer on the backs of us to pay 45 bucks to see Talib Kweli or whoever, right? Our Sa-Rock, our Dead Prez. It's actually on these big companies like Surfrider Foundation, environmental defense fund. And they give us the funds to create that equitable space to talk about the most important thing in environmentalism. It's not polar bears, homie. right? You know what I'm saying? It's not whales, although we love polar bears and whales. But once you put the real face of who's dying from these issues out there, Hopefully white America will be like, okay, we don't we know that we don't we don't just poison brown babies. That's what we're trying to create with these environmental justice summits. Literally a moment where Nancy Pelosi will come down and say, yeah, okay, we shouldn't have a radioactive Superfund site next to Hunter's Point. Right. Let's let's do something and maybe pave the road to the park so the damn kids can come and play. So so our environmental equity summit is May 20th. It's free. All ages. You can check that out at hiphopforchange.org. Awesome. Well, thank you for talking to us today, Koffer. That was, that was great. Of course. Anytime, you know, anytime, any conversation, any topic, you know, I got something to say on it, man. And I'm going to speak for the people. So, y'all, thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. Any social media handles that you want us, you want our listeners to to follow?
2: Yeah, just go to hiphopforchange.org. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can check me out, Khafre, K-H-A-F-R-E-J. You can, like, Google me now. And, yeah, we got so many different local Bay Area artists on Hip Hop for Change for y'all to check out in our radio show, KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM, every Sunday, 12 noon to 3 p.m.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Hi, what do you think of that discussion, Sylvia?
1: It was a great discussion to have with somebody that is, that that has firsthand knowledge of the situation and can show us how redlining is still impacting people today. And the part that he referenced about going to a school that was not in his uh, school district reminded me of the discussion that we had in the first half of the show, where you were explaining how busing was a way to address some of these issues with segregation or to, you know, bring children from minority or from low income areas to attend some of these wealthier schools. But also, I think it was important for him to mention how he had to do some code switching in the process. And that's something that is important to acknowledge.
0: Yeah, Coffrey's a very uh, engaging speaker. It's nice to bring him on because I don't even have to do much of the talking. He steals the show for us.
1: And we could have kept talking to him for like 30 more minutes.
0: Yeah, I had to to look at the time and be conscious of how long we were going. I hope that all of you enjoyed that episode. If you did, we are a new independent podcast. And the best way that podcasts spread is through word of mouth. So if you liked that, why not share it with a friend? If every one of you shares this with a friend, then each of you shares this with a friend. What's that story about the rice and the chessboard? If you would like to support us, you can also subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss an episode. You can review us on whatever platform you're listening to this on so that we rank higher in podcast listings. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And next week, we're going to be talking to Rick Harnish, the executive director of the High-Speed Rail Alliance. And we're going to be talking to him about why America needs to build a high-speed rail network and how that will get done. So if you want to hear that, and if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you. See you next week.